and welcome back to Fly on the Wall. My name's Aaron Bennett. My name's Justin McCartney. And we are back with our third to last episode, I think. Yeah, we've been doing these for a long time now. Episode number 48. We'll be counting down. We'll be at 50 by the end of... Oh, it's a big one to finish out the semester. Three full semesters, yeah. That's how we planned it. Trust us. Oh, yeah. Big long-term <laughs> plan planning here at Fly on the Wall. Um, so we get a fantastic two guests this episode, uh, actually. They are both former White House social secretaries under President Bush and President Obama, Lee Berman and Jeremy Bernard. Um, they had, honestly, a, a, some fantastic and really funny stories for Aaron and I um, about their time working under those two presidents uh, and really what the job is, because a lot of it's, you know, kind of meant to be behind the scenes and stuff you don't see, um, but are really, really important to kind of the tradition of the office of the president. Yeah, and the two are actually on a book tour now promoting their book, Treating People Well, uh, which they co-authored bipartisanly, I think, yeah. if that's a word. They had a lot uh, to say about that as well. Which is really cool. It's a great way, you know, to, to see a job and how it's changed and how it's stayed the same, depending on, you know, who's occupying the big Oval Office and who's in these positions. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot more similarities than differences. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, as always, follow us on social media at Fly on the Wall Pod. Um, like Shoot us said, an email, fly on the wall podcast. There you go, that too. Whatever you want. Um, we have segments for you. Um, let's get right into it, spinning that segment wheel. Look at that. It's a Did You See That? One of my favorites. Uh, in this one, it comes courtesy of. Final wall guest from last season, Daniel Lipman, as well as current geopolitics fellow, who's in the office right next to us, Stephen Law. Uh, and this is uh, straight from Playbook on, I believe it was Thursday morning. Yep, this Thursday. Uh, and literally in the first, uh, the first few things they wrote about, uh, you can see Stephen Law's name. Stephen Law, as you know, um, the head of the uh, Senate Leadership Fund, and it's all about the the great work that his organization has done fundraising in the past quarter, uh, just millions upon millions, and it's a testament to you know, Stephen's dedication to politics, dedication to his work, uh, and being really, really good at it. So uh, check that out. If you don't subscribe to Playbook, subscribe to Playbook. Um, it's a great resource, and you get to see uh, you know some people that we see friendly faces here at Georgetown sometimes make the uh, the top headlines. Yeah, fly in the wall alums too. Yeah. Um, all right, with that, we will get into our interview with Lee and Jeremy. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we do. Thank you so much for joining us here on Fly on the Wall Podcast. We're really excited to have you both on here. Um, talk about what your role was as White House Social Secretary, how you both approached the role, um, and then get into some fun stories as well. Um, but just to start off, how would you define a social secretary at the White House? What does your job actually look like? Uh, the social secretary is responsible for every event that takes place on the White House grounds, with the exception of the Oval Office and the Press Office. So it's around 400 events a year. It's a large event planning operation with a very small staff. And it's everything from you know the state arrival ceremonies and state dinners that people think of that we would do, to very small personal dinners that the President and First Lady host in their residence, um, everything in between presidential medals of freedom, uh, press events on the South Lawn, turkey pardonings, St. Patrick's Day events, uh, everything that comes along. And there's usually more than one thing going on in any given day. Oh, wow. And we also would, or, or our staff, whoever was in charge of the event, would brief the president and first lady before the event, though 
she had already always read it. I'm I'm not certain that he had. He probably had some <laughs> other things to read. But uh, we would say you're gonna you know go out the podiums there. You know there's this basic stuff because the president is so busy he doesn't want to have to think about something. Mm-hmm. And like evidently the year before I started, he went down the stairs uh, for the Fourth of July too quickly behind the military and it you know, bottled everything up. They didn't know. So, you know, I had to say, okay, so this year you're going to do something different. Slow down a little bit. Right. And and to get his attention, I put sunglasses on and act like this was top secret. Uh, (laughs) But I said, you walk down the steps too quickly and it messes up the Marine band. So take a pause. And it seems so it's basic, but it's stuff they don't want to have to think about. Exactly. So I'm curious, in your two discussions between each other, writing the book, uh, we're just sharing socially, what differences have you two found in the ways in which you approach the rules? Did you do anything different, have a different mindset, different mandate, different structure? I think it was remarkably similar, and we found our experiences with the other former social secretaries to also be very similar in how we wanted to be certain that the policies of the president and the entertaining style of the president and first lady were reflected in our events. And that is a unifying theme that makes it pretty easy to do the same thing. So I guess, well, on that note, stylistically, how were the two presidents you served different in terms of how they wanted to engage socially? I think that they, every president and first lady, their own personality, it's hard to compare, but they both were very much about welcoming people especially people who had not been there before, and making everyone, including, and it maybe especially those on the other side, make sure they feel at home. And I think that was, as Lee said, there are more similarities, even talking to someone in the Johnson administration, mm-hmm. hearing wow. those stories, it we would be like, wow, nothing's changed. What has changed is technology. Right. Uh, when I first started, Facebook was you know getting bigger, but within a year, Everyone had a camera in their phone. Everyone put on social media. So we had to start monitoring some of that. Certain events, we would have a phone check because people were so focused on taking a photo or video, they didn't, Mrs. Obama said, they don't enjoy the moment. Sure. And it was also distracting for those who didn't have it. So that is one of the things, you know, really, and I'm certain now there's other things, it, it just evolved. And there is a long-standing way of doing things at the White House. There are traditions that have been around for decades and decades, even if it's a little thing like the eggnog recipe. Um, and we found in talking with the other social secretaries that um, they always defaulted to the best possible behavior. For example, there's a great story from Bess Abel, who worked in the Johnson administration. Um, she was approached by a man as she was planning a state dinner for the king and queen of Greece. And he said, I, this is very serious. I hate to tell you this, but my wife is dying and her fondest wish is to be able to come to a state dinner. Is there any way you could make this possible? And the dinner was already full, but Bess went upstairs and spoke to Lady Bird Johnson, told her the story. And Mrs. Johnson said, you must get them in, even if their table is, you know, sort of halfway out Mm -hmm. of the state dining room, they must be invited. So they came 
And then, you know, three months went by and Beth saw them again and a year went by and five years and (laughs) decades and she realized she'd been had, but she did the right thing. And she always warned us about this. She and did. she said, First you know, time. fatal yeah. illness is no excuse to give someone an invitation. <laughs> they dinner. won't think of anything. And I, there is a tradition that the outgoing social secretary hosts a lunch or a dinner for the incoming, mm-hmm. and it's only social secretaries. And she was saying, you know, I was hearing all these stories and people were like, they'll do anything. And I did have someone that said, you know, my, my wife has cancer. And I, I knew the person was it. And I was like, uh-huh. I, I, knew it was, <laughs> uh, I knew it was somewhat of a lie, but the best able story is the best because it, you know, she says she still sees them today. It's been, you know, several generations. She got well quick. Mm. Well, good for her. Yes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> for your position. Yes. Yeah. Um, something you mentioned, Lee, was that uh, there's obviously a ton of tradition that goes into the White House, specifically the event planning at the White House. So for each of you personally, was this... How did you kind of get to the job is what I want to know. Was it, were, were you always well-versed in White House tradition, always really passionate about, you know, the Easter egg role that really brought you to this role, or, or, or how did you get there? No, I had worked um, in the Bush first term for the Cheneys as social secretary and then as Lynn Cheney's uh, chief of staff, but the whole operation of the vice president operates very much under the radar at the White House. Mm-hmm. No one really notices or cares what they do. And so I had very little appropriate White House experience for the job. And it was on-the-job training. And my best trainers were the resident staff you know, who worked there their whole careers. Mm-hmm. They don't come and go with different presidents. And they really understand the importance of discretion and loyalty and the quality of service expected at the White House. I One of my first questions to... I went. I was in Paris working for uh, the ambassador, in uh, U.S. ambassador in Paris, and I had just been there a few months, and I got an email from the chief of staff saying, "Would you throw your hat in the ring for this position?" And I kind of laughed, like, "I'm not." <laughs> and but I thought, "Yeah, of course." And they said, "We can do the interview from the Situation Room. Mrs. Obama can go there." And I said, "No, if it's serious, I'll I'll fly into D.C." So I flew in and. Uh, had the morning meetings with all the senior chief of staff and all the senior meetings went great and I was feeling great. And then I was walking around and I really thought I wasn't going to get the job. So I was walking around and thinking, this is going to be the best day of my life. I, I, <laughs> I actually had business in the White House. And then as I'm waiting for Mrs. Obama to come into her office, I suddenly think, Jeremy, do you know how to do this? And so... When after uh, you know talking for a little bit, she I said I I'm going to be real honest with you. I really am not good with floral arrangements, and I do not know China. I don't know that I'm the right person for this job. And she said, "Look, you'll you have people, you have resident staff. They'll help you. I need someone with good political judgment." So I think part of it is trust, and that they know before. The Obama administration, I knew there was a social office. I just never knew there was a social secretary. Then it became more high profile. And and we really worked hard to make sure it wasn't about us. It was about the president and first lady. You're listening to Fly on the Wall. We'll be right back. This week's Tweet of the Week comes to us from, uh, again, a Fly on the Wall Twitter favorite, Senator Orrin Hatch. Um, who tweeted in regards to the death of the Hill's 50 most beautiful contests that they run every single year. Uh, he, he said, you wake up 
early every day to comb your hair and pick out the brightest shirt tie combo with your strongest pinstripe suit, thinking this is going to, to be the year, dot, 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 <laughs> then this happens. Um, so love Senator Orrin Hatch injecting some humor into uh, his political commentary there on Twitter. Yeah, I think he just missed it by like 50 years. Or right. <laughs> but also, RIP The Hill, 50 Most Beautiful. Said that that's some fascinating insight, and I want to go a little bit more to what you said, just said, Jeremy, about you know good political instinct in this role. So, when you were planning these events and, and, and you know thinking through all the implications of the decisions you were making, what what sort of stakeholders were at the table helping you plan this? Who was calling the shots? Who was you know helping you make these decisions? And you know what were some of the things you were thinking about? when you're going about the planning process? You know, it depended on what, like with state, uh, for a state dinner, which is, was actually a fairly small part of our job compared to everything else, but it's the most high profile. We would have meetings with uh, lot, uh, numerous staff from protocol. We would have, and the Secret Service, and we'd have one big meeting to start and Secret Service would talk about limitations or how many guests we're going to get in this gate. And, um, and then people in the, West Wing about who should someone in government of intergovernmental affairs to say what governor should be there, what Congress people. There were so many hands in the pot, mm. uh, understandably, but it, it, it part of the job was managing uh, sometimes a number of egos and difference of opinion. And so it was balancing that. Right. I, you know, I got for a just a fun event, you know, a dinner party or something the Bushes were having. I would get ideas from Mrs. Bush. I would have my own ideas. Those were very different from something like a state dinner for which we had a very specific formula. And you got four names of members of Congress from Legislative Affairs, and you got 10 names from the State Department, and you got probably 25 names from the Office of Public Liaison because they were the people charged with finding the really interesting individuals that the press was going to write about mm -hmm. afterward. Like, you know, when we had the Prime Minister of Japan, they invited Apollo Ono. Um, people like that that made it fun, not just for the other guests, but really for the guest of honor, the head of state. Um, and sort of building off of that, um, how closely does kind of the ultimate boss, the president or the first lady, have a role in some of these planning things? And um, I guess kind of building off of that, what are some of your favorite moments working with um, the president or the first lady? Well, uh, they would just make little notations of people to add in. Occasionally they cross somebody out, not because they didn't necessarily like them, but they just felt <laughs> they were wrong for that particular sure. event. Um, and I enjoyed getting that kind of input from them. And then they would always tell me who they wanted at their table. They would look at the guest list on that day and they'd send me who they wanted and even occasionally who they wanted next to them. And I often put sports figures at the president's table because he really enjoyed talking mm -hmm. about sports and that was a way for him to relax. And so that was, you know, sort of my way of helping him have a fun evening. They're very, very punctual, the Bushes. If, if anything, they're always early. And then he liked an early evening. And so at, after a state dinner, um, when there was traditionally dancing after the entertainment, they would maybe do one dance and he'd be out. He'd go upstairs and it put a bit of a damper on the dancing for others because it's a little awkward to think you can stay there and dance for another couple of hours if the host is not there but he you have to realize with these presidents they're up the crack of dawn and they're on a state visit day there they have one thing after another in the public eye and it's exhausting so by 11 o'clock at night they're pretty tired yeah i can imagine it, it depended on the event I, but one thing that kind of 
I think represents what the relationship was. Uh, during the second inaugural, there was a reception at the White House and Mrs. Obama had gotten a new haircut. And I said, wow, that's a great haircut. And she goes, really? Thank you so much. Ask what Barack said. I said, what? <laughs> Ask what Barack said. And so he turns over to me and he goes, I said it was a young cut. And I go, ooh, ooh, bad, bad. And so the next day we have another reception. And at the end of the photo line, the president says something. And I said, yeah, I kind of like your comment to Mrs. Obama about the haircut. And he said, why do you bring that up? <laughs> why do you bring that up? He goes, you know, you are special assistant to the president. You work for me, not for her. <laughs> I can fire you. She can't. And I put my head on her shoulder and I said, but I know who has the real power. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great glimpse inside, uh, inside both White Houses. Uh, and I think your job is uniquely situated to see that human side of the president and the first family, more so than I think a lot of the public ever gets to capture or senior staffers for that matter. Uh, so a little bit more into, you know, some of the coolest moments you've had in the White House. Uh, so a lot of the important job of social secretary uh, is managing a bunch of special guests that are coming in and out of the White House. So, you know, what are your favorite memories of, you know, special guests that, you know, you've always wanted to meet that you got a chance to interact with? Uh, or, you know, making the president stay by bringing some one of their favorite figures to the White House. What sort of stories uh, come out, out of those, that, that part of the job? You know, my favorite thing was meeting the Dalai Lama because I'd always mm -hmm. really admired him. And I had a very different expectation of what he was actually like. And he's very sort of giggly and childlike and joyful. <laughs> and, it, you know, in, the, and in a White House that's at war, that stood out. And it was just right. really wonderful to be around him. My first year for Kennedy Honors, uh, Meryl Streep was getting the award, and the president was really looking forward to her being there. And before the reception, before the actual ceremony that takes place at the White House before the event, uh, I asked uh, her family to go get take their seats and that the honorees go out later. And I said, I'm sorry I had to send your family out. She goes, no, 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 that's okay. Come sit, sit down with me. I'm so nervous. And I'm like, you're nervous? <laughs> I'm so nervous. I said, he's so excited. I think he's more nervous. He's the one that should be there. So it was interesting to see the reaction of people that are used to the attention mm -hmm. and how they react. One recipient was so enamored with Mrs. Obama. He had his whole family there, just kept looking at her. The photo was taken, and then the, everyone starts looking, except he's still looking at her and mrs obama goes uh jeremy she goes i'll see you later jeremy they're in our box right i said you know the box right next to you you'll see and got him out she goes <laughs> scary <laughs> oh man um so uh obviously another kind of element of um the event is a, a ton of logistical and kind of personality challenges um that go into really not just sort of the big state dinners but kind of the everyday or multi-day things as well um, so, did you ever have an event that just didn't really go well? Um, and then how did you manage that, and how did you kind of crisis manage those situations? Oh, I definitely did. I, <laughs> it was an official luncheon for the president of China, and one thing after another went wrong from the very beginning. Mm. There was a heckler who'd been allowed in on a press pass, oh. so for the whole state arrival, there was a four-minute period where the Secret Service couldn't quite figure out how to hustle him off the lawn. and. Uh, President Bush and President Hu were left standing on this platform looking increasingly grim as this yelling went on and on and on. 
And then when the president of China was introduced, uh, the White House communications announcer got it wrong and said, ladies and gentlemen, the president of the Republic of China, which mm. is Taiwan, yeah. rather than the president <laughs> of the People's Republic of China. And both of those things are seen by the Chinese as an intentional insult. And they started peeling out of the events. So the lunch that day, I had a dozen of the top people drop out and were frantically pulling chairs from the lunch. And then I was approached by a State Department person who said, you know, we always have a problem with the Chinese wanting their translator to work for both presidents, so make sure the American translator is there no matter what you do. And of course, the Chinese translator had taken the seat of the American translator, and I tried to explain to her that she needed to move over one seat, and she pretended as though she didn't speak English. Which is weird for As a translator. translator. <laughs> um, and so I grabbed the American translator and said, when I get this seat open, I want you to sit in it and don't get out for anything. And so I pushed the woman's chair forward a bit and she leapt up and whirled on me in anger. And I shoved our translator into the seat and I could see the Chinese chief of protocol coming at me looking absolutely furious. And at that moment, I was actually saved by the band because the Marine band struck up hail to the chief and the two presidents walked in and the event was over in terms of the <laughs> confrontation but really it was so many mistakes oh. but so many out of your control too is yes. the thing. yeah that, that's where I, I would check i would be like make sure the presidential seal is on securely because my fear was even though it wasn't our job to put it, my fear was in the middle of an event that was going to drop <laughs> and i thought you know it it falls on us so it there were you were always afraid more than what you do of what is, happens and you're responsible for it, but you have no control. And, and that's in the, the various teams, the winners of college, you know, basketball, football, they were always a challenge because they, oh, yeah. you know, they didn't know how to behave. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they really literally did not know how to behave. And, you know, the house is also a museum and, and there's some very fine and unique furniture in there. And you can't come in and throw your feet up on the state dining room table or, you know, lounge across the James Madison sofa. And the curator and the chief usher would go crazy. This week's Politico's As Real People um, is, we're not going to lie, a little bit of a stretch. We really wanted to get this out there. Um, it's a really fantastic article um, in GQ this week. Uh, titled The Real Story of Hawaiian Missile Crisis. Um, and it's a really long piece about um, sort of how everyone reacted. Um, it has a lot of personal stories. Um, they sent their journalists out there, I guess, to talk to kind of everyday people, first responders, um, and why we justified it as politicos, um, the people who were kind of responsible for um, the false alarm that went out uh, in January, claiming that there was an incoming ballistic missile, which, of course, there was not. It was just a test. Um, that went horribly, horribly wrong. Uh, but check that article out. It's got some really, not funny, but like really interesting stories about how people react to that sort of thing. I think, uh, you know, just to move into some of our final questions, because I know we've kept you for a while, but one thing that I want to get into is that you, you formed a unique partnership. You know, I have them both left the White House in, in similar role or the same role, um, having done similar things, uh, and then decided to go through this book writing process together. So what I'm curious to know, and I think our listeners would be as well, is how you've learned from each other in sharing your experiences and, and what about your shared experiences you felt was valuable enough uh, to put into writing and to put out a book about? 
<laughs> Someday we should write a book about all the stories we didn't put in. They were too explosive. Right. They were called, this is what we really think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, but it's been great working with Jeremy. We have a lot of fun together and, you know, we're having fun promoting it as well. But the writing was, I thought, really very easy. It, at the time, it didn't seem easy. It took a long time. Sure. But we, the we, friendship developed from the first social lunch that, for my introduction. And then we just, and I would talk, call different social secretaries all the time and I ask, you know, what did you do with this? But Lee was one of my go-to people. And then we became friends over the course. And as I was thinking of leaving, uh, a reporter from the Washington Post uh, was at dinner with me and said, you know, you get along so great with all the forum or socials, but you and Lee are really close. You guys should write a book and no one will not buy it for the fact of, oh, it's about Bush or, oh, it's about Obama. It exactly. comes off. And that's and then so then we started talking about what is it that book could be because we didn't want to write about entertaining because that doesn't really in itself show that much of what we did and it also has been done. Right. And Jeremy, I think, is a kinder, gentler person than me. So as we were writing, I'd sent him something and he'd email back and say, maybe we leave out that story. <laughs> so he made it nice. We, we both had a few uh, have to edits, but... Uh, and one follow-up question with that, what about this book and your experiences do you think could be valuably, uh, more valuably applied to politics as a whole, to how you know, we conduct? Because one of the missions here at Geopolitics is to teach students how to enter the political world and do things a bit better. So you know, what in your experience in, in this book is you know, sort of the big takeaway for us who are going to carry on the mantle? Well, you are being given horrible examples in public life right now. You really are. I feel sorry yeah. for a young person trying to come out and do something positive in politics right now. And what I would say is, you know, every working environment, uh, to some extent, is political now. But if you're going to be in politics, you need to find ways to move forward agreeably. And, and you know, if you think about some of our successful past presidents uh, and what made them successful, uh, Lincoln... Roosevelt, uh, Kennedy, Reagan, they understood that government works through mutual accord. And if you do not give that respect to the people you're working with, you can't possibly expect to be successful and to get anything done. There has to be, and you know, especially in democracy, which works through cooperation and negotiation, you can't move forward if you can't talk to each other mm -hmm. and have some measure of respect and trust. Yeah, I, I think that we worked really hard when someone that was very critical, sometimes mean, uh, toward the president, a member of Congress, and they, senator, they came to the White House, we really, because we're not supposed to be, we're welcoming everyone. Exactly. And I went overboard to make sure that those, some who I didn't like at all, felt very welcomed. Um, and I think, and I learned that I went to a school where ever in, in Texas, all my friends were very conservative, except for one. And I learned, but I knew politics because my parents were involved. So I learned how to talk politics and not be combative. Because if I was combative, I had no, no friends. Right. Exactly. So it, that, it, it really is important and it's something that's lost today. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Thank you both for those insights. We're going to end on a bit of a lighter note of a fan fa a favorite segment here, our lightning round. Um, so basically, we have three questions. Um, they're quick, kind of fun. First, uh, first answer that pops into each of your heads. Um, 
just say it. And off. you both can answer. The yeah, yeah, you both get an answer. Um, so first lightning round question: What is the favorite event you coordinated? We'll start with Lee. Oh gosh, I'm sorry. This I know it's lightning, but I'm just drawing complete <laughs> blank. You go ahead. Uh, I actually loved the holiday. It, 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 Social Secretary's got to dread December because you start planning oh, uh, the holiday yeah. reception in June. Mm-hmm. And that was always odd to have Mrs. Obama come look at different options we had in July and talk about Christmas. And uh, so, the but as hectic as they were, there was one after another, and we were relieved when they were over. But when I saw them at the end of, you know, as December got close to, Christmas, I saw them get on the Marine One and take off. It was all kind of like, oh, Christmas is over. <laughs> yeah, the last Christmas party of the season is the best party of the year. <laughs> Just because it's the last. <laughs> How was that for lightning? Party? <laughs> yeah. Let's try again on the second one. Yeah. Uh, and this may come a little bit fresher. So what has been your favorite part of the yearbook promotion tour? I love running into people that I haven't seen for years, mm-hmm. people that I worked with at the White House and who I've always enjoyed and admired and learned from, you know. And so it's been great, especially this week, because we've been in Washington all mm-hmm. week, to see so many different old friends. And hearing the different questions from different, I mean, some of the questions are kind of the same from one audience to the other, but sure. most of them are very different. And it's interesting. I do believe there is a hunger for civility at this time. Yeah, absolutely. And then final lightning round question here. Would either of you ever go back to work in the White House? No. <laughs> Didn't even get to finish the question. There we go. <laughs> it, 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 I, I, don't, I don't want to say no because sure. I, I, I worked in the Clinton campaign in 92. And at that point when I started, George Bush was at 87%. No one thought we had a chance got in. And I thought that's a once in a lifetime thing. Then I did Obama, same thing. And before, even on the campaign, I was like, I'm not moving to D.C. I'm not going there. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want to say no. But as you get older, if you don't get this yet, but as you get older, it gets harder those days. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's a young person's game. And in fact, we used to hire staff that were like 23 or 24, and they'd burn out after a year mm-hmm. because it's that kind of an environment. So definitely not. Right. But absolutely once in a lifetime experience. And both of you have Great. demonstrated that here. Um, thank you both so much for taking the time thank to you. talk with us here and flying along. Yeah, and you want to give your book one final shout? Thank you. <laughs> Treating people well. The extraordinary power of civility and work and in life. There you go. You Definitely. can get it online at any of the Amazon, Barnes & Noble. We don't want to promote one of them. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Just buy it. No endorsements here. Absolutely. <laughs> thank, thank you, you both. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Fly on the Wall. Thank you to Lee and Jeremy, who were fantastic uh, guests. I had a lot more fun in that interview than I expected. They had some wild stories, uh, and just you, you can see why they're social secretaries, right? They're exactly. Always the life of the party. Yeah, the, the personalities for sure. Yeah, I was expecting much more about, you know, like this is the importance of, you know, mapping out the, the state dinners and things like that, but it's so much just kind of off the cuff, cuff innovation. Um, and really that just like the, the personal side of not just the president's, but of working in the White House. It's really, really fascinating. Well, as always, subscribe to us on iTunes. We can't do anything else with that, uh, your iTunes subscription. So that is make true. sure you do that. Yep. Check us out. Follow us on social media. And a uh, pretty exciting announcement here from Fly on the Wall. 
This Monday, which is tomorrow, if you're listening to this pod on Sunday, we will be doing a live recording here on campus um, with the Geopolitics Page Turners um, event with uh, E.J. Dion, who is a friend of the pod and guest last spring, and Norman Ornstein for their new book, One Nation After Trump, A Guide for the Perplexed, the Disillusioned, the Desperate, and the Not Yet Deported. Oh, I hadn't read that title before. That's really funny. Wow. Um, they are going to be on campus talking about their book in Old North 205 at 11 a.m. here on campus. Um, Fly on the Wall co-host Christian Mesa will be hosting that event. We'll be recording and releasing that as a special episode as well. But so stop by. Do not let that deter you from going to the actual event. No, absolutely stop by. That'll be great. We look forward to seeing you all there. And you know what? I forgot about that when I said we're going to end up at 50 episodes. With that one, we're going to end up at 51. Uh, So close. Almost. Thank you, Fly on the Wall, and we'll see you next week.